Hello and welcome to episode 98 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science. My name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me as every episode, my main man Ben Marshall. And yeah, this episode, we've got a Patreon selected episode. So big up to all the Patreons, uh, immensely grateful for your contributions. And this one was an idea suggested by John Jewell. And John wanted an episode on king snakes, which are... Of course, you know, incredibly popular, colourful snakes, constricting snakes. Um, Yeah, they're just generally considered to be awesome. They come in a wide variety of colours and they're known for their behaviour of eating other snakes. Hence the name King Snakes. Yeah, Lampropeltis. What does that mean then? Peltis, I imagine, is something to do with pelt or skin or colour. To my shame, I haven't actually gone into this this time, but I remember having this conversation in the past, and I think there's like a bit of controversy around the origin of the word Lampropeltis, because uh. some people say it means like shiny shield head, and or shiny shield, referring to the shiny head, but it could be a bunch of other stuff. I think the kind, I think the jury's out. <laughs> I wish I'd known you were going to ask me. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, I feel like we've had this conversation in the past. I feel like I've looked it up, and it's like a bit of a... It might be one of these ones where it's kind of been lost to the sands of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, once w- someone had a very good reason for it, or it sort of naturally developed, and then uh, the logic has been been forgotten. Yeah, um, it's quite. It's a good one though. It's it's, it's quite a nice nice yeah. word in general. It is. Lampro like means bright, and peltis means shield. So it's like from the Greek pelte, small shield. So yeah, it could be bright, bright small shield. But yeah, not sure what that refers to, whether it's the shiny head or some kind of scalation. Yeah, bit of a non-answer really. But anyway, they're um, they're a really nice group of snakes. And yeah, John suggested we do a, an episode on them. Um, we couldn't get like modern, modern papers because at any time we get a request which is specifically targeting a genus or a species, the reality is that like a lot of these animals which are popular um, actually aren't that well studied in the wild. I think the advantage that Lampropeltis have over a lot of them is that they're actually in the USA, which obviously conveys a massive advantage in being studied because there's Yeah, a there was of- a there was a wonderful comment in one of the um in one of the papers that was basically basically saying, yeah, we pu- we chose these species because they have a, you know, a body of literature behind them so we can actually develop some ideas about them. You know, we've got somewhere to start from. And I think, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, happens to be in the US, <laughs> happens to have had more research, hmm, yeah, <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> then they get more research and it sort of snowballs and then, yeah. This is how you end up with heavily studied organisms. Or or model organisms that were chosen, not because they're particularly model, but because they are uh, particularly convenient. And then it sort of backward. Oh yeah, it's model. It's a model species. Don't worry about it. Mm. <laughs> of course, it represents other things. And uh, yeah, I mean, like you say, that one of these papers used a whole bunch of museum specimens. Obviously, they have to be available for the study to take place. And yep. the other one used a whole bunch of captive individuals. And obviously, you know, you're going to need to pick a snake which is available in the captive environment. And king snakes are easily reproducible, and so popular pets. And so yeah, they could get a big sample to do 
the study like this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's no no detriment to the study. I didn't want that. Come oh yeah, no, they, no. Were, they were lazy picking Lampropoulos. Oh. No, <laughs> no, not <laughs> at all. But I think it's the a other practicality thing, is, thing. <laughs> as with any science, it kind of snowballs, doesn't it? You know, like they're yes. referencing papers which were the first ones to look at sort of quite fundamental elements of constriction, and it only. It, na- it naturally follows on that if you've studied one animal in that context, you do the next paper on it because you know it's likely to work. So, yeah. 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 So let's get into the first paper, shall we? Yeah. So, yeah, this one's Penning and Moon 2017. The King of Snakes, Performance and Morphology of Intraguild Predators, Lampropeltis, and their prey, Pantherophis, published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. I love the premise behind this. You have Snake Species 1. You have snake species too. Now, cursory glances at both these snake species. Hmm, well, they're genera. Pretty, they're genera. Sorry, um, genera. Genera. Um, pretty similar body shapes, right? They're snakes. They don't have arms. They don't have legs. Snakes. But how can one snake routinely best the other snake in single snake combat? That's the real question. Because they don't appear to have any particular advantage just looking at them. No, no. So yeah, the, the the premise of this being that king snakes are savage, ruthless predators of the rat snakes, Pantherophis. And rat snakes cannot sort of flip that around very frequently. No, usually when a king snake encounters a rat snake, even if the rat snake is slightly larger than the king snake, the king snake will eventually subdue it and kill it. And I don't know if you've ever seen any videos of snake on snake constriction. I know I've seen I've seen probably more of venomous snakes, which is obviously very common. Um, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm thinking too. That's that's the stuff I've seen. I don't think I've ever seen two non-venomous, assuming that they're non-venomous. Yeah, yeah, non-venomous in the sort of uh, traditional. Uh, non-medically significant. Yeah, non-medically yeah, non-medically significantly venomous to humankind. But um yeah, so obviously, you know, king cobras, uh, various coral snakes, you've seen videos where they'll bite a snake and then the snake just seems like it's completely annihilated, it can't really do a lot and then it gets eaten and swallowed. On the flip side of that, you've got the battles between king snakes and rat snakes where the king snake basically enters into a really prolonged period of constriction and yeah, kills the snake over what can be a period of many hours. And as a snake lover and as someone who really likes both of these groups, watching those videos is like quite unpleasant. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Also, as I learned in preparation for this episode, as I was reminded, because for some reason I'd forgotten, if you ever go onto YouTube and Google anything to do with snakes eating, you're going to have a really bad time. So not recommended. The fir- one, of the th- one of the first videos I scrolled past was a alligator eating a live rabbit so i can't unsee which was extremely unpleasant so whoever put yeah. that out there there's literally no need for that ever don't come on now like there's there's no, there's no reason to yeah. create an alligator versus rabbit thunderdome but um yeah so the premise of this paper you know predators usually are bigger than their prey but not always you know it's generally safer to attack and kill things smaller than yourselves king snakes kind of break that mold by attacking something very very similar size to themselves and this is a battle that's been going on through the evolutionary millennia um and the the, the reason behind this paper what they wanted to find out was basically as you said ben on the face of it they look similar but why is it that king snakes win these bouts what is it about their physiology the way they constrict their tactics that makes them better and able to subdue yeah pantherophis snakes they sort of split it down into three different aspects right three different ways this could be explained one is 
if you look inside the snake, maybe they're different inside. Maybe maybe uh, maybe king snakes are just stronger on the inside, even though outside they're relatively similar in size and whatnot. Other one is maybe they can squeeze harder. Maybe they have better constricting pressure. So, or what you know, what could allow them to do that? Any number of things that we'll get into. And then the final one is maybe they're better at getting away. So maybe they're more capable of when rat snake tries to turn the tables on Kingsnake, Kingsnake can get out of it. They have better sort of escape performance, as they call it in this paper. Or naturally, it could be a combination of all three of them, or two of them, or (laughs) anything in between, as always. And of course, there's a host of things which which are going to be involved, which aren't measured, because you can't do everything. But yeah, like you say, so they've got attitude. Yeah, so they've got this triple prong attack, and um, the species, just briefly before we get stuck in, the species they were using, they had three species of king snake. All of these snakes are native to the USA. So the, the king snakes were Lampropeltis californiae, the Californian king snake. Uh, they had Lampropeltis getula, the eastern king snake, and Lampropeltis holbrookii, the speckled king snake. And the three rat snakes were Pantherophis alleganensis, which is the eastern rat snake, Pantherophis guttatus, the corn snake, yay, corn snake, and Pantherophis <laughs> obsoletus, the black rat snake. Um, so, yeah, you know, a few different species from each group, which is cool. It's really cool that they had access to that and museum specimens and stuff. That is an important point just to highlight. We're going to be talking about the cross sections of snakes. These were from museum ones. These snakes weren't killed for the purpose of this study. They were already in museums. That's... Yeah. To me, though, like it's a really destructive thing to do to a museum specimen, isn't it? Yeah, well, I would imagine that they have a hell of a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. That's the only way. What did they have? 36 specimens that they dissected, I believe? Something along those Um, lines, yeah. Yeah. I would imagine. Well, they say from teaching collection or personal, personal collection. Oh, you know what? It might be like they've just been collecting roadkills and stuff for a long time and they've got a bunch of... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar you, fixation and preservation duration. Yeah, yeah. Because so, depending on how many times the snake's been run over, you could measure its uh, cross-sectional area. Oh, least. absolutely. What do they do? 20, 40, 60, 80, and 100% of its SVL. So, you know, if if the snake was killed just having its head run over or something, that would be a, actually a very good use for a dead yeah, snake. Ideal. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the first one was the cross-sectional areas, right? So... Try and understand how king snakes are so effective at constricting. Like we said, they measured the cross-sectional area of the muscles in these species. So they sliced down the snake, you know, as if you just like cut cut the snake in half, open it up. That's the cross-sectional area, right? Cut it in half along its length. Um, kind of like when you slice, you know, when you you got a nice juicy burger and you slice it in half, open that bad boy out. That's the cross-section of the burger, yeah? So we got the snake sliced and... They were measuring the size of the muscles close to the spine that are used in constriction. They're called epaxial muscles. Uh, in humans, if you want to imagine what one of your epaxial muscles are, if you arch your back, you'll be using your epaxial musculature. Everyone's doing it now. Yes, that's your epaxial <laughs> musculature. And yeah, the snakes use those for constriction. They use those to squeeze. Um, and yeah, I mean, to be honest, we probably don't have to hang around on this because surprisingly, there was actually really a lack of significant difference between the king snakes and the rat snakes in this muscle cross-sectional area right there wasn't really a big difference at all there was no significant difference um and so the yeah in relation to it's also sort of accounting for the mass of the snake too because bigger snakes are going to have more muscles that's just 
you know, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So the way they looked at it was, yeah, they all sort of scaled the same in relation to the snakes getting bigger. Yeah. So, yeah, species, doesn't matter what it is, seems to have the same sort of relationship. Bigger snake, bigger muscles, no real difference between the species. Yeah. So you can rule out the idea that it's just king snakes are more muscly. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is one <laughs> that is one hypothesis dealt with. Yeah, get out of here. So but the they second still have idea, better performance. So. Yeah, the second idea they had uh, was the differences in predation performance. So this experiment went slightly differently. So what they did was they fed each snake um, a pre-killed rodent with an attached pressure sensor. And luckily for the authors of this paper, I mean, king snakes in captivity are widely regarded as to be like extremely greedy animals. Um, they don't just eat <laughs> snakes. They also eat uh, rodents. They'll eat anything, really. Um, and so you're, you're, you're saying that they are prime uh, study species for more like behavioral studies because they're super food motivated. Absolutely. It actually made me laugh in the second one that we'll get on to. Like the, the way they were just gorging some of those snakes. You just think like, it's so <laughs> funny. Just, it's just to keep feeding it. Ordinarily, like you just never would do it. But for the sake of the experiments, it's like, what? How much can it eat? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what they did, they fed each snake pre-killed rodents with a pressure sensor attached. And then while the snakes were eating the rodent, every 10 seconds, they'd just wiggle it, give it a little wiggle. So that keeps them interested. Because if you don't wiggle it, I mean, we talked about this with the boa constrictor paper way back in episode three. If yeah. you don't, if the snakes, if if the snake's not detecting anything alive in the rodent, it's not going to waste its energy squeezing it. It'll just start eating it. So. Right. They're they're quite good at optimizing their energy usage. Right. Constricting's probably quite an energy intensive thing to do. You don't want to overexert yourself. You do as much as you need. Get on. Carry on with your day. Yeah. The snake has an internal monologue, which is basically just saying, "Stop! He's already dead." Yeah. <laughs> So they recorded the peak constriction pressure. So that's like exactly the hardest each snake squeezed at any point during the uh, constriction event. And they also counted how many loops the snake used in the constriction event. And yeah, they just wanted to see if there was any differences in those metrics between the groups of king snakes and rat snakes. And well, there was. Um, firstly, they, they noticed that king snakes typically constricted in this quite neat posture where they formed multiple loops forming a tight coil around the prey, kind of like a spring with the prey inside. 91% of king snakes used a coil like that, whereas only 5.4% of rat snakes used a coil like that. What rat snakes tended to do was just kind of slap a few coils over, sometimes one, sometimes a few, bit, I, hap I, bit haphazardly. Yeah, I think the way I think of it is the king snakes had tidy, tidy constricting you know, a traditional what you is what you perfectly imagine a constricting snake to do. Yes, if you were going to sit down and do a painting of a snake constricting an animal, you know, yeah, that's what you'd do, isn't it? Nice tight spring-like coils. You don't want any of this flopping around. It's not Mess. about that. Yeah, but, but rat snakes, you know, they take it a little bit more casually. They're not as interested, and that was also kind of reflected in their peak constriction pressures. Um, king snakes had constriction pressures between 5.3 and 41.6 kilopascals, um, which is a unit of measurement d denoting pressure. Yeah, let's just let's just translate that for people, because who uses kilopascals in anything that they... I don't, but I right. had a look in Google and I worked out what can be, what a kilopascal... I, I, I found a way of making it relatable. So if a human being is walking, the pressure of a human foot on the floor exerts between 60 and 80 kilopascals. 
So basically, if you were walking and you put half your weight on a on a mouse, that's what the king snakes are doing. <laughs> okay, I'm walking along. There happens to be a, a rubber mouse with a pressure sensor inside of it. And I step on it without realising it before putting my entire weight down. I pull off, oh, it might be a real rat, real mouse. But it isn't. That's about... That's so dependent on a person's weight. That's such a weird way to, to tell that story because at first it seemed like you didn't want to put your weight even on a rubber mouse. And I was like, what a sweet man. Yeah. You would never even dream of crushing a rodent. <laughs> but then you you kind of flipped it and said, oh, it's not a real mouse. I don't need to exert my full weight. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that was, that was more me thinking of relief. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I thought it was you like see, I, I put myself through this this emotional roller coaster <laughs> thinking I stepped on a mouse. I could just imagine you realising it's, 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 it's is a real mouse and just going, being like, oh, I've got to finish the job. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, fair. Well, so yeah, I guess that's some context. I struggle to find a better example, to be honest. Was it? Oh, I, I want it almost like tyre pressure, but I can't... You can convert it into PSI. Right. So 20 kilopascals would be about three pounds per square inch. Okay. And that's the sort of, that's how, that's like what sort of rat snakes can reach at their peak constriction. Whereas yeah. for king snakes, it's double that. Yeah. I hope that, I hope that helps some people. I feel like pressure is a very difficult one to, to um, internalize. Yeah. But it's so dependent on like surface area contact. Yeah. Pressure is a weird one. I was kind of hoping there'd yeah. be like a measure for how hard a human being can squeeze something because that would be like totally relatable. But like, oh. there's no. I tried. I couldn't find that oh. information. What would that be? That would be like, maybe like average human. Um, there's a there's a word for grabbing, like a proper word that ain't grabbing. Is it like tensile strength or something? Grasp, maybe? <laughs> the strength of an average human grasp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while you do that, um, yeah, essentially the main difference was that, yeah, they found a difference and king snakes can squeeze harder. King snakes are harder squeezes than rat snakes. So it wasn't about necessarily their, mu their muscle mass, the amount of muscle they had. It was more about just their ability to squeeze. Yeah, all, all, these, all, these grip strength all these grip strength measures are providing me with weights. Meaningless. Which, All meaningless. Yeah. So this is what I had. This is the problem I had. It's, it, it's because it comes down to the the contact. Like you can't you can't work out pressure without without a, a some sort of area. measure of yeah of area. Which mm. has, you know different hands are going to be different sizes. But even no the the half weight on one foot <laughs> <laughs> in retrospect is looking a lot better. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate your efforts for making that. Well, it's nice to feel yeah. appreciated. Thank you. So um, let's get on to escape performance, which you mentioned earlier. Maybe the king snakes are better escapers. So this one, to be honest, of all the experiments they did, it's kind of funny feeding snakes. They don't really care if there's something attached to it. They'll eat it regardless. You can cut it off halfway through. But when it comes down to taping snakes to desks, <laughs> it seems a little bit more. <laughs> this one was a little bit weird. Yeah, yeah. This, one, this one made me actually look through the rest of the paper to see if they got ethical approval. Because I've never heard of an experiment like this to be to be blunt. Yeah, um, I hadn't. I was like, they did what? Ha what? And then I was trying I, to imagine it. I read it like three times, and I was like, I see, I see. So basically, what yeah, they did, it becomes a little bit more clearer in the results, right? Because they're, yes. they're 
description in the methods is a bit ambiguous, I would say. Yeah, so what they did, they taped the snake with gaffer tape behind the head to a desk, and then they stretched the snake out straight, and behind the snake on the desk, they taped a spring-loaded weight. So that was taped onto the desk, and that, that can measure the force that's being pulled on it. And the spring, which is attached to that weight, they then taped to the snake. And so what they had was a snake who's taped by its head to the desk with another with a with a spring taped to its tail that it can then pull as it tries to escape from the weight which is attached to the spring. So they're measuring essentially um, the the pulling strength of a snake yeah. um, by by inducing the worst case scenario for the snake of being stuck. Um, and obviously, when they're put into that situation, snakes they'll kind of form an S shape and just basically pull with all their might to try and try and get free. And what they found was that the bigger a snake was, the more strongly it could pull, which you'd expect. Yeah, it makes but, sense. Yeah. But again, um, similar to the cross-sectional muscular area, there was no difference between the species groups or between the species. So basically, just bigger snakes pull harder. Yeah, I mean, it was only... <sighs> there, was, there was a difference between the species, but it was small. I mean, it wasn't significant, but only borderline. And if you look at the sort of numbers, um, you can. <laughs> there's definitely overlap between the two species. Like it's it's def you know their, their stats are saying it's it's not a significant difference. That's fine, but if you were to just eyeball it, it does look like uh, Lampropeltis is a stronger snake in terms of pulling force as well. Yeah, marginal, non-significant, but. The sort of averages tend to be a little bit higher. Mm. The thing is, there's a lot of overlap. Like the strongest snake was um, a rat snake. Yeah, I think it's. Um, but it's also, hard... so was the weakest. Yeah, it's um, it's difficult one to eyeball for me because um, so many of the rat snakes are so much smaller than the king snakes in their sample. It's like, oh. But yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you got to you got to go by their stats. Basically, of saying it's they're essentially the same. Yeah, there is yeah. so much overlap. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like you say, not not a significant difference. So what that paints really is a picture where the reason for the success of the uh, king snakes versus the rat snakes is their constriction performance. They are better constrictors. They're better squeezers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, they the fact that their escape performance is similar suggests that yeah, the reason they're winning these encounters is the constriction performance. But um, it's not exactly clear exactly why. They're so much better at constricting. Um, they do postulate in the methods, uh, sorry, in the conclusion here, that king snake coil posture might maximize the force applied. So they're just, they've got neater coils and that's allowing them to be more powerful. And it reduces how much they need to sort of move and adjust during the course of the constriction event. You know, once they're in that coiled spring position, they can just sit and squeeze and they don't have to think about too much more. Um, they also suggest there might be some difference in how the muscles are formed inside king snakes. Maybe there's like different angles of incidence between the way the muscles connect, etc. Stuff like that. So like some sort of deep physiological reason why it's different, which you'd probably have to look a bit more closely at the musculature to, to work out. Um, and then they also mention that because in battles between these two groups they're so elongated, you know, like we said at the beginning, it could be going on for hours. It could be that King snakes just have a much more endurance than rat snakes. Mm -hmm. And that could be for a number of reasons physiologically that they've got better endurance. Um, I guess their cardiovascular systems and things start coming into it at that point. So, yeah, 
king snakes are better constrictors. That's why they win. Um, but the exact reasons why that's the case, not quite yet. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's the mechanisms that remain a little bit uh, unclear. But I do, I do think the neatness of their constricting is a really nice uh, sort of concluding remark for the paper. Yeah. And because it makes right there some... you've got a behavioural difference where the physiological differences might not be too dramatic, but you've got a, you know, the, the behavioural difference was coming out in this paper alone in just this sample. So it gives you something really nice to sort of follow up with. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely a lot, lot more yeah. avenues. And I feel like... Um, we've got another paper from Penning coming up, so I feel like, uh, yeah, this is an area of research which hopefully, hopefully will continue. So, um, Sorry, just, just with that, the neatness um, of the coils, the results there are adjusted for the number of loops. So there's still a higher constriction pressure, even if you control for the number of loops. Oh, nice. So it's not just how many loops they're doing. It might be how the loops are sort of applied or something that's cumulative, you know, you, that's interacting with that in, in some some way that isn't perfectly described by just number of loops. Right. If, if I'm understanding what they're presenting in figure three correctly. I think you are. Yeah, yeah, I think you are. I, I think so. Little. Paired with a comment in the discussion saying that that's what that's showing. I, yeah. Yeah. So they're good constrictors. We know now that king snakes are elite constrictors, but they're also greedy. And a natural question to ask is, would they be so good at constricting if they already had a full belly? Yeah. So second paper then. Another penning one, like you, like you said, uh, when is it published? 2016, this one, Journal of Zoology. The gluttonous king, the effects of prey size and repeated feeding on predatory performance in king snakes. Yeah, so like you say, can consume one thing just fine. What happens when they've just had a meal? Yeah, so snakes, they'll happily gorge on multiple prey items when they find them. They have a similar example in the paper, but I've seen this firsthand. The Escalapian snake population that I study frequently, if you catch a snake and it's got a full belly, it will regurgitate what could quite easily constitute a family group of rodents. So you'd see like a mother mm. and then the babies too. So, you know, when they find a nest, it's might you know, this might be quite an infrequent occurrence. It makes sense they want to try and gobble them all down. And this study focuses on another one of the king snakes, which we had in the previous paper, the eastern king snake, Lampropeltis getula. And uh, again, this is another paper that we can kind of quite neatly split into two experiments. And I reckon it makes sense to do them in turn again. So the first experiment was to see whether having just eaten a rodent would affect how tightly the snake squeezed. So that, that constriction pressure we were talking about before. And also whether it used a different amount of its body length when actually coiling around the prey. Yeah, you can imagine a stuffed up snake having less sort of flexibility because it's trying to flex a you know rodent inside of it or whatever it's just consumed well yeah it's like imagine swallowing a whole roast turkey and then trying to do a sit-up yeah it's not going to be easy it's going to feel odd it's going to be more difficult um potentially that's what this paper's out to find out so yeah they fed one they fed the snake one rodent 
with the um, pressure sensor attached, see how much squeezing it was doing and how much of its body it used in coils. And then once it had completely eaten that rodent, immediately afterwards, they'd do the same thing again and measure it again. And there was 20 snakes in this experiment and they were split into two groups. One group were fed small rodents twice. So they were fed a small rodent and then another small rodent and they were measuring to see if there was a difference in the constriction pressure and amount of body in the coils. And then the other group had a big large rodent and then straight away followed on with another big rodent to eat. And again, they wanted to see whether or not that would affect their uh, yeah, I mean, Just to contextualise that difference, small rodent, mouse, big rodent, rat. So it's, you know, it's a pretty sizable difference. <laughs> yeah, and easy to, easy to understand. I like that. Um, so yeah, they did this with their two groups of 10 snakes. All snakes constricted and consumed both prey items, which goes back to the king snake greediness we were talking about earlier. Um, Willing to participate in the experiment to check. <laughs> yeah, it's literally like... <laughs> My lazy iguanas here. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, those iguanas are just like, look, mate, I'm not opening a door to get a carrot. Do you think I'm some kind of mug? If I wait long enough, you'll leave. Yeah. And I'll get it in my own time. The carrot's not going anywhere. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I don't have the energy for this. So, yes, they did that as described. And for snakes eating small prey, the length of their coils was the same for both feedings. So it didn't change. They used the same amount of their coil in both the first didn't mouse and the second. Significantly change. It didn't significantly change. Yeah, because yeah, this is this is a thing with all these. It, it's... There are differences. There were smaller coil lengths, just not significantly different. So there's overlap, and they're all log transformed for some reason. Which I'm not sure why, which makes it slightly confusing. I felt, but I don't know why they would do that. Yeah, I I wasn't super sure on that. I, I can only assume it's to force it into a distribution, distribution that yeah. works with the stats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that obviously makes it difficult for us to work out what these numbers mean um but nevertheless the point remains um you know the second the second small feeding yeah, slightly less coils but not statistically significant in contrast when the snakes ate the large prey the second rat they ate they had less coil to go around less of their body was used in coiling up the rodent mm -hmm. um which you know as you've said it kind of makes sense because if you've just eaten something massive and you're trying to you know, flex your body and squeeze it around something. Having a gigantic rat inside you is going to be a bit of an inconvenience. So it's not exactly surprising that that was the case. And if we move on to constriction pressure, the snakes eating large and small prey used similar amounts of constriction force on the first feeding. And snakes which were eating small prey also had a similar amount of force on the second feeding. But the snakes who'd first eaten a large meal, when they came to eat their second large meal, they had significantly less constriction pressure when they tackled it, showing that, again, having ingested large prey makes it more difficult for them to subdue the second prey item. Yeah, combined, it's this really nice picture of small prey only having, well, basically negligible effects on the snake's ability to just keep on eating, whereas a rat-sized prey item is making a pretty big difference. And so the sort of, I guess, implication would be uh, these snakes, once they've taken a large prey item, although they're keen to take another one, are going to be less effective uh, predators for that second prey item. You can imagine, you know, just consumed a large rat or something, then comes along a rat, you know, comes across a rat snake, that's going to be a fairer fight all of a sudden. Oh, 
yeah, King King Snake might have lost its advantage because it's already full on rat. So we've seen what happens if you feed them two prey items after another. And I don't know about you, but the next logical conclusion for me would just to see how many you can stuff in there. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're not being force-fed. Let's they're make that clear. This, yeah. this, is, this is purely snake-driven, snake-optional food consumption here. <laughs> they're willing participants in this trial. They're probably just like, Christmas has come early. This is a result. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the second, the second experiment we could call the gorging experiment. And in this one... I think that's a wonderful name, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In this one, 10 female snakes were each given or offered six small rice... Small rice? (laughs) Six small mice in a row. Good luck trying to get a king snake to eat grains of rice. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That just wouldn't work. Um, But yeah, so 10 female snakes were each offered six small mice in a row. They measured the coil length and constriction pressure for each predation events so like each mice each mouse that was eaten they measured how tightly it was being squeezed and how much of the body was used in coils so they offered them six but quite amazingly actually i thought all 10 snakes would only eat five yeah that's their limit that's just that's just where they cap out yeah five and they're done and it sounds like the kind of interest in the prey sort of steadily decreased as they went along. <laughs> like, uh, oh, another mouse. Yeah, yeah, sweet. Oh, yeah, uh, right. Uh, another mouse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> An- another, another mouse. Eesh, uh. And then by the time... Refuse. Got, yeah, by the time they got to six, they were just like, look, your hospitality is second to none, but I can't have any more mice. <laughs> So then, yeah, six, number one, number six, they were just like, no, I'm not having it. So, yeah, five, five mice were eaten by each snake. And what did they find? Coil length did reduce between the five trials. Um, Constriction pressure was highest during the first trial and got noticeably lower in trials four and five. For trials Mm. two, three, it was sort of lower than one, but higher than four and five. Um, And to put that in a bit of context, during their fifth feeding trial, so the last mouse that they ate, peak constriction pressure was reduced by about 46% compared to their initial performance. So they're only squeezing around half as hard from the first one to the fifth one. So that would put them in a possession where a rat snake could out-squeeze them. Ah, it would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I (laughs) I guess you would not find a king snake there just eating four mice trying to eat a large rat snake. I mean, more than anything else... Just where are those mice going to go? go when it <laughs> yeah. eats the snake? Like, are the mice just going to be sort of like bundled around? The pressure. Well, you got to get. You no, know, you you have to eat the rat snake head first, so the rat snake can eat the mice as it's going in. If then they could pull that off, yeah, I think that would be remarkable. But I don't think that's what happens. So I think they'd probably just leave it out if they saw a rat snake. I, they'd yeah, just be like, I'm not going to bother you. The rat snake can count as lucky stars. But what wasn't important, you said that reduction, that was still sufficient to seriously disrupt a rodent's uh, cardiovascular system, correct? Absolutely, yeah. It it was a reduction, but it's not a reduction to the point of this would only be possible if these were pre-killed rodents, which they were. They weren't given live rodents here. Um, So it's diminishing returns, sort of, in coil length and, and... Peak constriction pressure, that's sort of dropping off, dropping off, dropping off. But it never bottoms out to the point of not being able to get the job done. They're still killers, even with four four mice down. Yeah. But then maybe that's why they didn't take the sixth. Maybe it wasn't a space thing. Maybe it's a, 
oh, wait a second, there's no way I'm going to be able to constrict that. that and would that would just be putting myself in danger because then you're wrapping yourself around a rodent that you're unable to subdue. That you're just, you're just, you know, that's a horrible position to be in. You're going to have this bitey little, little mouse wrapped in you and with reduced mobility. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense because it seems a little bit coincidental that they would all be equally as greedy. Um, but yeah, if it's to do with their knowledge that actually it's not safe for me to try and tackle this problem, mm-hmm. that's cool. Oh, it's a yeah, trade-off thing perhaps. Who, who knows? Mm. Really cool. But yeah, so um, yes, they get less effective as they go along. The more they eat, the less effective they are. But as we said, you know, they're just built to kill. So it doesn't really matter on the face of it. But um, there is probably a likelihood that they would elect not to tackle certain prey once they are full and you know anyone who's seen a snake with a full belly knows that they're kind of funny like they're a lot less effective than they would be otherwise even the way they move you know it's like (laughs) it's a big imposition having a a, a meal that's a large percentage of your body weight being carted around especially you know i mean you can imagine this in a sort of python context or something where they're taking prey items that are easily 100 percent of their body weight if not you know more than that that is quite a substantial change to your morphology in the space of minutes yeah you know we had that wonderful paper about the metabolic uh like exertion they had to deal with for digesting large meals oh yeah and if that's a wonderful way of highlighting just how big a deal this is for snakes taking such large prey items they have to basically dedicate their entire system to digesting it that's (laughs) <laughs> the thing that stands out to yeah. me about that paper was the rest, the heart rate go, the heart rate change in a boa constrictor that's had a big meal is equivalent yeah. to a racehorse going from rest to gallop. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Just, Just to digest food. Crazy numbers. Crazy numbers. Completely Amazing. different setup. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, those are two papers about king snakes and how they eat stuff, which I thought were just great. Thanks again to John Jewell for the suggestion on king snakes. It was a really good one. And uh, yeah, nice to delve in and learn something about these predatory snakes that eat other snakes. Ophiophagus. Yeah. yeah. No, re- really interesting papers and sort of really got to quite pointed questions, I feel, but sort of answered them in a very satisfactory way. Mm. Yes, there's still some doors open in terms of mechanisms, some mechanisms, but. Uh, Really nice answers. Mm. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, top notch. So I think that takes us onto our species of the bye week. Now it's not a rat snake. It's not. It's not a king snake. But it is but it a might, snake. It might eat rats. It might eat rats. It might eat rats. So this paper is entitled Entiaspu Nito 2021, a new species of Erythrolampus from the savannas of northern South America, published in Salamandra. Uh, sorry, I should have said et al. There's a, there's a few other authors as well. So yeah, we are in the genus Erythrolampus, which is a widely distributed genus ranging from southern Mexico to Argentina and Uruguay. Basically, if you're in a forest or open savanna in the New World, you're likely to find an Erythrolampus of some description, which is going to be bowling about looking for prey. And 
This new species. Do they get? Are they just South American or North American too? Uh, I think it's just. Yeah, so Mexico, Mexico down. Okay, so new world is in Mexico down. Yes. Cool. And so uh, Erythrolampus, prior to this paper, had 51 recognized species. Um, Obviously, now this paper is going to be bringing it up to 52. And yeah, should we talk about this brand new species that's been been described? Yeah, I feel like this is a bigger one than we usually have for species of bi-week, getting up to, what, half a metre? Yeah. Maximum, the largest one they had was half a metre, down to, like, 12 centimetres. <laughs> so, a lot of variation in, in the uh, specimens, they, the free specimens they had. Um, so, it's absolutely stunning-looking snake. What does it look like? The head markings give a little bit of a Chrysopelia ornata vibe mm. to me. Sort of greens and blacks. Um, it's got a very... It's very Chrysopelia, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, gosh, almost chainmail scales with the coloration. Like, the, the coloration highlights each scale individually, essentially, with darker... Uh, Darker areas on top, sort of more black areas on top with little green speck highlights. And then it sort of fades down into nearly continuous green on the sides. Mm. But the green is a very blue green in some of the pictures. And I don't know if that's just the uh, the white balance of the photography, but um, it's quite something. Bright orange eye too. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Um, it's a really beautiful snake. Um, is that it doing? Yeah, sort of lateral. What what do they call that? Lateral neck flattening, uh, like defensive display. Oh yeah, lateral flattening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this uh, species has been described from northern Brazil, Roraima State, um, and basically, it's. What they think the snake does is living in sort of open savannary environments, um, which are pretty well, um, they're, it's a pretty widespread sort of ecotype. So they think that maybe this snake might spread all the way into Venezuela, um, Guyana, potentially, but it might be rare in sort of forested environments. So they think it's sort of a savannah specialist. One of them laid seven eggs after they collected it. Um, one of them was known to eat a frog. Oh, no, one of them... <laughs> one of them Oh, one of them um, actually ate frogs' spawn, so ate eggs and oh. tadpoles. Yeah, and another one ate an adult snake, ate an adult Leptodira annulata. So, and here I was talking about rats and rodents. Yeah, so this snake actually could well be Batrachophagus and Ophiophagus. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So frog eating and uh, snake eating. And what have they called it? They've called it Erythrolampus enigma, spelled A-E-N-I-G-M-A which is a Latin singular noun meaning a mystery or a riddle. And it refers to the absence of males in their sample of specimens. So they only ever found females to describe the species. Yeah, just a, just another, just making connections to try and give people a better idea of what it looks like. It has um, on the back of the head this sort of dark band, which 
has sort of hints of Natrix-like species, or even like Rakdophis, mm-hmm. like suspiciously other frog-eating yeah. groups. Like, I don't know what, I mean, there might be no significance there whatsoever, nothing to do with the fact that they eat frogs, and it just happens to be a very common, potentially aposomatic or uh, uh, camouflage-related marking. But um, <laughs> it's there. Yeah. Oh, I suppose it's to make their heads look a little bit more viper-like, maybe. That's, Could well that's be, That's yeah, one yeah, argument for it. Be, yeah. I think we've had that come up in, in discussions before. Mm, yeah. Certainly with the way it puffs up its, its neck, it does make its head look a lot more triangular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But no, it's a uh, it's a very nice looking snake. Um, yeah, really cool. So check it out. Erythralampus Enigma. Give it a Google. See what it looks like. Well, and look at the other the other members of the well, uh, yeah. genus because holy smokes. There's a figure in this paper which literally reminds me of this really cool book I've got about Californian snakes. And it's like drawings, pencil drawings of a bunch of Erythralampus species um, in both like dorsal and ventral view. And it is so, so cool. It's just so cool to see the variation in their coloration between these different species. Yeah, I feel like we don't get enough um, descriptive uh, identifying illustrations in herpetology compared to, say, ornithology and other fields. Yeah. I'm not entirely positive why people like to rely on photographs and fine, there's an argument for photographs being good, but a well-illustrated identification drawing can be just exactly mm. what you need and just, <laughs> in just some seeing this figure is a really good way of demonstrating to people that just because something looks different doesn't mean it is different like some of these species you know there's like three examples of uh which species is erythralampus dorso corallinus and you know there's a yellow one a green one and a red one they look wildly different yep. they look far more different from each other than they look than they look from this new species and yeah or you've got these these ones below it that look very similar, shall we say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but those are different species, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how things look doesn't always mean what they are. <laughs> I suppose, <laughs> you could say. Uh, yeah, but I think that just about ties up our episode, really, doesn't it? Got a new snake, welcome to science. Um, some cool stuff about king snakes eating. Have you got any other business? Nope. Nope. Cool. No other, uh, nope, can't think right. of anything. Cool. Well, um, yeah, thanks again to John Jewell. And if anyone else wants to be our Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, herphighlights at gmail.com. If we got anything wrong, um, if we've mispronounced something, if we just generally misrepresented your work, then get in touch. Oh, my and... gosh. Yes, definitely the last one. I would hate that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's the absolute nightmare, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all good. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're on social media and stuff. So, yeah, get in touch. And if, um, well, no, I think that's it, really, isn't it? All that remains to be said is uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>